I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Nice to see so many of you, even though it's glorious outside. But I'm not surprised that you've come to hear Emily talk about her wonderful book. I've been sort of reading Emily's essays in places like the LRB and M plus One for years and I'm very, was very excited when this book came out to kind of see them collected and changed into a book form. And one of the things that I find so striking about Emily's voice is that I think she does the kind of best of a sort of anthropological journalistic curiosity. But in writing about sex, she also manages to avoid what I think is often a temptation that people give into when writing about sex, which is to indulge in a kind of defensive cruelty sometimes when they're describing um, their own or other people's negotiations of sexual desire and attempts to kind of articulate uh, sexual life for themselves. So one of the things that I love about the book is that Emily is both very astute and very diagnostic about the sexual culture that we inhabit, but at the same time she's generous and sympathetic and kind of tenderly open to what the people she's encountering are trying to navigate and explore. But also she displays that sort of same attitude to her own explorations. And I hope we can talk more about that really interesting kind of meld of attitudes that she takes in the book. Um, so the result of um, the, this kind of tone that Emily undertakes is this book that's a really fascinating posing of a question of how and in fact also whether technology has changed sex and how we think about sex. And um, before I ask lots of questions that I'm dying to ask Emily, um, we'll get her to read something from the book. Do you want to use that one? Sure. <laughs> thanks for having me and thanks for coming out. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning. I was single, straight, and female. When I turned 30 in 2011, I still envisioned my sexual experience eventually reaching a terminus, like a monorail gliding to a stop at Epcot Center. I would disembark, find myself face to face with another human being, and there we would remain in our permanent station in life, the future. I had not chosen to be single, but love is rare and it is frequently unreciprocated. 
Without love, I saw no reason to form a permanent attachment to any particular place. Love determined how humans arrayed themselves in space. Because it affixed people into their long-term arrangements, those around me viewed it as an eschatological event, messianic in its totality. My friends expressed a religious belief that it would arrive for me one day, as if love were something the universe owed to each of us, which no human could escape. I had known love, but having known love, I knew how powerless I was to instigate it or ensure its duration. Still, I nurtured my idea of the future, which I thought of as the default denouement of my sexuality, and a destiny rather than a choice. The vision, the vision remained suspended, jewel-like in my mind, impervious to the storms of my actual experience, a crystalline point of arrival. But I knew that it did not arrive for everyone, and as I got older, I began to worry that it would not arrive for me. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was um, the theme of openness and transparency, because it struck me that one of the threads that runs throughout the different chapters, and in the book we've got chapters on the orgasmic meditation movement, um, on internet dating, on internet porn, webcams, polyamory, burning man, birth control. And that in a lot of these different arenas that you sort of interview people in and sort of engage in and explore yourself, there's a kind of recurrent um, preoccupation with or an assumption of the, of the ideal of transparency in relation to sex. So being honest, being, um, being frank, and sort of bringing into conscious, explicit awareness things that perhaps are operating under the surface in relation to sex. So an example of that would be in the chapter on orgasmic meditation, which for those of you who don't know, probably you do all know, um, is a, a technique, a sort of practice of um, stimulating women in a non-reciprocal way that is a sort of a sexual technique, but also it's more about sort of an emotional experience of intimacy that isn't to do with kind of the giving and receiving of orgasms. Um, and you quote someone who's part of the movement who says to you, one day asking for orgasmic meditation would be just like asking someone for a cup of tea. And you talk about the kind of the rhetoric of lightness and cleanliness, um, also in relation to internet dating. So the phrase, um, a clean, well-lit well -lit room, I think it is, that's actually a kind of marketing term um, that was used in relation to internet dating to partly to encourage women into, to, or to make the space kind of supposedly more friendly to women. And so I wanted to ask you whether you thought, you've, you felt in the kind of different arenas that you explore in the book, what do you feel about that ideal? Is it an ideal that's kind of possible in the first place in relation to ourselves and sex? And if it's possible even, is it desirable? Does it work for sex? Because a lot of people in the book really believe that that's true. Like the polyamorists that you talk to are very committed to kind of openness and stating the rules and stating the feelings, stating the jealousy, feeling the feelings. Mm -hmm. But I wondered if you agreed with them that that's an obvious thing to aim for. Yeah, it's, it's not something I would have seen as a theme in the book, but you've pointed, now that you've pointed it out, I do see it that mm -hmm. way, that first there's a long history of euphemism, especially when it comes to women's sexuality, not only speaking of 
the 19th century, but even more recently that women are taught to consume sexuality through self-help or through Cosmo. And, and those, as much as they pretend to be very sexually open discourses, are often, um, you know, a woman is more likely, for example, to consume pornography that's presented as a how-to guide to a certain kind of sex rather than something that's just there for sexual stimulation. So there's that euphemism. And the clean, well-lighted space was a phrase that kept coming up in marketing of women's sexuality, both in internet dating, uh, with the orgasmic meditators. Um, it, the original phrase, or obviously the original phrase is a Hemingway story, but um, it was used in this context by Good Vibrations, which was a feminist uh, sex shop in San Francisco that it, what they pioneered was um, sex toys that were taken out of their pornographic packaging and that were presented in this safe space for women that didn't have all the signifiers of, um, of porn and of male sexuality, basically. So it, ha it served a liberating purpose that I actually came to see came to question as more euphemism, a different kind of euphemism. Why was it that literal depictions of sexual intercourse were so off-putting to women? Why did that feel uncomfortable to me personally and as well as clearly to many women? Because the internet dating sites, for example, found that the more sexually overt they presented themselves, the less um, women would be likely to use them. So. Because the book was really a search for a more honest and authentic approach to sexuality and more honest and authentic future for myself and for the culture I lived in, I think when I thought of, when I met people like the polyamorous and like the live webcam people that had this comfort speaking of sexuality in this very literal way instead of using these euphemisms. I began to wonder if the tool that had served a purpose of liberation a few decades ago was now being used to obscure things and maybe it was time to discard it. Yeah, because I mean one of the things that I find really fascinating in the book is the kind of the feeling of your discomfort that you interrogate. So you talk about discomfort there and, and in fact there's a one passage um, in the orgasmic meditation chapter that I thought really kind of you know, pressed this question of whether of, of what form liberation should take. Does it take the form of kind of openness and frankness and you know the direct gaze and the kind of frank speaking of what is inside us, or or is that its own kind of deluded hangover from kind of you know past experiments that have gone wrong? Um, and you talk about um, Nicole, who's the kind of guru of OM, if I'm remembering rightly. So you're, you're in this um, orgasmic meditation workshop, and there's a lot of kind of discussion of, you know, frank discussion of feelings and, and people sort of sharing their responses and thanking one another in response to the, the kind of honest imparting of, of the feelings that are in the room. And then you all kind of break away for lunch and come back. And Nicole, you say that Nicole lamented that we had all returned to our normal state of sexual repression. This was true. I felt much more relaxed, which, I mean, it's a brilliant line for a start, but it's also very, very telling because, you know, obviously repression has figured as this, you know, the symbol of what, you know, liberatory sexual politics 
should turn against, but at the same time, repression is very socially useful and it's psychologically very useful as well. And um, I thought one of the things that was so moving about the book was the way in which you tread this kind of very fine line and, and often kind of refuse to come down on either side in a, in a kind of sort of polemic way. But, you, you know, you talk about, for instance, feeling that, that you should be entitled to defend yourself against unwanted male attention. So you talk about, you know, in the orgasmic meditation workshop, some of the rhetoric is about just accepting the sexuality in the room, like not, not closing yourself off to sexuality. And you, and you rightly sort of point out that, well, you know, when you're dealing with unwanted male attention, defending yourself against that is sort of an, a necessary useful function. Um, but that you also talk very movingly about the kind of costs of that kind of defensiveness, that, you know, some of the anxiety that you experience in relation to sexuality is one that you, you don't want to be attached to. So I guess I, I wonder whether, you know, having gone through the process of writing the book, whether your feelings about that, that very delicate balance of kind of vulnerability and defense or, you know, closeness and openness is one that has changed for you having encountered and engaged in all these different ways of trying to answer that question. Yeah, it changed a lot. I, when I began writing the book, I thought of myself as a very open-minded person in the sense that I had a lot of friends who had many different lifestyles and preferences, and I didn't judge them. But when it came to myself, I had a very fixed idea of who I was and what I... I, I thought I knew my own reality, um, which was pretty closed... Um, you know, I, I didn't watch pornography. I thought it was for men. I just thought it was not interesting to me. Um, I, you know, I was open to other people's non-monogamy, but for myself, I thought it was a little naive and self-destructive. I thought it always didn't work. Um, I thought of myself as like an innately monogamous, safe person. When it came to things like internet dating, I didn't ever check the box that said I'm interested in casual sex because, not because I never had those kind of encounters in my life, but because I didn't want to declare that and because I saw internet dating as a project that I was undertaking to find a boyfriend. I thought that if I checked that box, it would cancel out the boyfriend quest. So... I was really blind to how all of these beliefs were not really informed by trying anything, blind to the fact that they cohered into a kind of obedience um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to an ideal I had about how a good person was and what a good person did and a successful person. And so hanging out with these communities, at first I would, you know, I would hang out with the orgasmic meditation people and I would kind of make fun of them with my friends, um, which I now feel horrible about because, and they knew that and they kind of, in their slightly cultish, new agey way, um, would, <laughs> would sort of smile kindly at me, mm -hmm. and, but with a knowing smile that mm -hmm. I found really annoying at the time. But <laughs> it was true. You know, they were, they could, they did see something about myself that I, I wasn't willing to admit, which was my own reluctance to confront sexuality in a, in a, yeah, in a clear and honest way. Mm -hmm. And I think it came also, 
going back to the question of honesty, uh, another thing I meant to add was this, um, there's a very strong idea that what might be called a feminine sexuality defies literal representation mm -hmm. and that it's mysterious and nebulous. And I had this own idea that if sex was good, it was this alchemical, magical accident that sometimes happened between two people. And I really resisted the idea that it could, it was like a practical course of study or something that mm -hmm. you could be better or worse at. Or, and I still think that there's limits to education in sexual matters, but this idea that there's more purity to it if you know less about it and it happens by accident and there's no verbal communication around it, I began to see as a mm. false idea. One of the things that also struck me in relation to that is how powerfully you felt the force of the kind of traditional narratives about what, as a woman, you should want. So the force of the expectation of marriage or of having children. And you, and you talk in the book about feeling a kind of wistfulness for those narratives in a way that the, the sort of status or the kudos or, the, or just the kind of the, the being sort of held or contained by that category is something that you, you clearly felt very strongly. I wonder whether you think that's unusual or if you know women who are growing up who are perhaps younger than you is that is that something that feels as powerful to them as it seems to have felt for you that I'm not sure I think it is still very powerful certainly for people my own age even women in their late 30s who've now had a lot of experience in life it still seems to hold a you know the idea of meeting a person that you love and you marry still seem holds a powerful sway over them. Either, even if they're resisting it, their resistance almost needs to be extra defiant. Um, mm -hmm. Like, oh, I, I'm not interested in any kind of long-term thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I just like hooking up. I prefer that. And your sense of loneliness or your sense of belonging are directly related to the story you can tell about your life. And if it the easier that story, I think, is understood by everybody around you and not just your friends, but your grandparents or your aunts and uncles and your parents, the more you feel a sense of rightness and belonging. Yeah, I was a person that just liked to follow rules and liked getting good grades and liked being, you know, achieving the metrics of success that my family and my mm -hmm. culture had laid out for me. And the metric of success in sexuality was still marriage. It was still mm -hmm. the thing that was easiest to explain that everybody understood and children mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And it bothered me that nothing I could do could just like make it happen. Yeah. You write very interestingly about the relationship that in, in the kind of futuristic discourses about sex, the relationship those discourses have to the past. So you, you write about how you kind of situate yourself in relation to the 1960s as a product of the experiments of that era. So you talk about the sexual revolution and how your moral worldview originated in that historical moment, along with my sexual freedom, the computers I used, my disinterest in organized religion, the multiculturalism I valued and much of the literature and music I loved. It glowed from the past like a city just over the horizon, which is a beautiful line. And I wanted to ask you about, so one of the things 
that I found very striking is that the book seems to me to be written in a tone that is, so it's written in the past tense and it's about a period in your life when you're navigating your relationship to people who are kind of theorizing and trying to live a particular relationship to the future. But that relationship is massively overdetermined by past attempts to think about the future of sex. So there's yeah. a really interesting kind of temporal, you know, looking forward and looking backwards that's going on. And and you talk really astutely about what you describe as the obedient children of the 80s and 90s, saw the failures of the counterculture, took them as implicit lessons from our parents, and held ourselves in thrall to grade point averages, drug laws, health insurance, student loan payments, college admissions, diplomas, internships, condoms, skin protection factors, antidepressants, designated smoking areas, politically correct language, child safety locks, gym memberships, cell phone contracts, bike helmets, cancer screenings, credit histories, and career advancement. And I'm sure many of you in the room are you know, ticking off those concerns. And I wanted, I wanted to hear your thoughts a bit more about this, the kind of the, you know, the city glowing from the past, the 1960s, the rhetoric of sexual liberation and sexual freedom and how that is, you know, constantly repeating itself in these very futuristic technologies or kind of experiments. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, my parents both um, were born in the mid-40s and they always spoke with nostalgia about that time of their life. And my mom would always say how sad she was that we didn't get to experience that. And any time like a movie would come on, she would be nostalgic for, I think, the sense of freedom. Even though things were bad then <laughs> and they were fighting against some stuff, I don't know. It seems like there was a sense of possibility and purpose. And yeah, you know, I wanted to write the book in part because or I, re I read this history of the sexual revolution by a writer named Gates Lease called Thy Neighbor's Wife. It seemed unfinished. Well, it ends, he published the book in 1981, I think, and it ends with kind of the 70s. You don't get HIV, you know, it ends with like people in a sauna. <laughs> um, and obviously doesn't talk about the internet, doesn't really talk about the feminine experience of all of this freedom that people now had and their attempts to process it. So I wanted to model the book in a sense on that, but I just didn't see, among my own friends, I didn't see any interest in experimentation, especially not declared experimentation. So I sought out these communities that were very intentionally experimenting. Mm -hmm. And their relationship with the past was, the thing that really seemed to have changed is they weren't following a theorist like Marcuse or like Theodore Reich, where there was this idea that if you can liberate yourself sexually, war will end and capitalism will end and we'll all be free. I mean, that's a reductive view of it. But the people that I was talking to in San Francisco, that kind of thinking was now seen as very naive. But at the same time, it's very infused by that thinking, isn't it? I mean, the orgasmic yeah. meditation people talk about the kind of sexual energy in the world, which is totally right here. Like, yeah, I mean, they kind of map... It's kind of like Adam Curtis's theory about how that all of that those ideas um, reverted to self-help and yeah. solipsism and um, and the quest for the self. I mean that they the orgasmic meditation people come directly out of the human potential movement, and they all had been to um, 
there's this thing called AST, which I'm sure, yeah, maybe you all know about it, but, you know, you would go to these weekend workshops and scream at each other and relive the experience of childbirth. And um, so they had all gone through the name now for the, what now exists from that, and the U.S. is something called Landmark Forum. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all came out of that school of thought and kind of workshop self-help culture. So they were, yeah, there was there was a connection to the past, but also it had been really capitalized. It basically mm-hmm. had gotten, and their whole thing was they were going to make some of these Ideas which had started in these um, communal experiments, counterculture experience, they were going to make them accessible to more corporate people that didn't think of themselves as wanting to throw off the chains of capitalism or anything, who wanted to be normal. But you're so good on that relate the relationship between those two things and the kind of the tension. I think, like in the Burning Man chapter, the way you diagnose, you know, the problem with going to the desert for a week and experimenting and sort of, you know, throwing off the shackles of everyday life and then going back to your jobs at Google and Facebook. And I mean, I think you say something like these, you know, people would never have dreamed of campaigning to decriminalize the drugs that they were using at Burning Man. I thought, you know, you're very, very astute at, you know, the strange kind of cognitive dissonance that we all have to do to engage with the, the, the forms in which ideas of liberation and freedom come to us through mm-hmm. Facebook or whatever it is. Yeah. And Burning Man in particular was something I was personally conflicted by because I, I went there. It was a, an experience for me where I got to try things that I didn't try in my real life, and it really was related to being able to buy a ticket and go somewhere without having to be a part of a subculture, without having to know where the cool sex party underground culture (laughs) like I could just buy something Mm. and go yeah there's a door you go through and then you leave and for Americans that's a really you know a way it's a really comfortable way to practice new ideas is to go buy a vibrator or to go yeah to buy to buy things (laughs) um Mm. is a nice it's easy it feels comfortable Mm. and yeah people I don't know when I have to defend Burning Man which I do reluctantly sometimes. Um, that's my defense is like, okay, not everybody gets to be cool. Not everybody knows where the underground sex party is happening. And for some people, it's helpful to just buy something and mm-hmm. arrive in a space that gives them where there's permission. But yeah, then there's the other side of that, which is it never transcends that space but now I have second thoughts about it because I know now um, a lot of these like corporate tech people are actually advocating to legalize drugs or Mm -hmm. and they're putting money toward um, research experiments with using certain drugs and psychotherapy and all of that so maybe I was maybe I was wrong about that can you talk a bit about um the webcam stuff. I thought that was, I think that was my favorite chapter, actually. It was so beautiful and interesting. Um, and I feel like, I mean, along with several of the other chapters, what that chapter did was, you know, really kind of explore the texture of some of the, the forms of sexuality that have emerged with the internet in such a way that you didn't indulge in 
either the narrative that you know anything a woman does is feminist or you know and, and anything that somebody chooses to do of their own sort of free choice is fine and you know we're all empowered and have agency or you know that on the one hand or on the other hand a kind of catastrophic narrative about um technology being such that now whatever women or young girls do is a form of kind of capitulation to something or a complicity with um you know male sexuality or whatever the, the thing is that is thought to be the complicit item so can you say a bit about how the webcams kind of created a, i mean to me it seemed like they created a different you know possibility for thinking about power and feminism and and performance and yeah it was a it, i got that um that chapter started as a magazine assignment and um which i took as a job and i didn't think I didn't think at first as I write in the book I didn't think live webcams were really represented something new or futuristic it was just an old model of the peep show or the strip club transposed in a digital medium yeah so at first I kind of went out, and then I started watching it and I would see these really there was the traditional woman wearing lingerie flirting with men but then there was some really strange stuff um people who you know this woman in Iceland who wore a horse mask and didn't speak to the didn't address the camera ever and she just went through this kind of crazy performance art almost and then there were women that would just talk a lot and just kind of sit and talk and and then when i interviewed them Yes, a lot of them were there to make money in this traditional kind of sex work dynamic, but there were there were a lot of people who saw it as a form of self-discovery and I and, and including and there were women that were on there as voyeurs. I write about a woman in her 40s who had to move home to Iowa or yeah, to a small town in Iowa to take care of her father. And there was no sex life really available to her there, she said. So she would go on this website and find young men and she specifically young men who would do kind of cam to cam sex with her. And that gave her a sense of belonging. It gave her a sense of something she calls mass intimacy. And yeah, from there I just began to see it went counter to the express purpose of the site which was this old mm-hmm. sex work dynamic but i began to see potential there for a kind of anonymous mass sexual experience that almost like cruising or mm-hmm. um that for women traditionally has been very risky and difficult to pursue and here women were pursuing it and i wondered if in the future if that website if a website like that were reconfigured to be more clean well lighted space mm-hmm. like the porn part taken out of it a little bit um if if more women would actually begin to consider it as that kind of place to have these anonymous anonymous encounters and then the other interesting thing was this one young woman who defined herself as internet sexual and said that she preferred mediated sexual experiences to physical ones In general of the book I was it was really easy to see all the downsides about like computers are making us all lonelier mm-hmm. and we're at home but I was trying to be optimistic because I was tired of reading that mostly and and so that to me thinking of that optimistically I liked that idea I liked the idea that you could be alone in your house 
and maybe a person that doesn't like to socialize very much. And here you could go and have this sense of anonymous belonging. Yeah, one of them says that webcams are an introvert's paradise. Yeah. And, and those phrases like mass intimacy, they're so interesting, I think. And I mean, I, I find it just a really refreshing kind of way to think about what it is to, you know, to engage in those technologies and, and, and to try and articulate a view about those spaces that doesn't have to just argue that it is just performance in a you know in a problematic way performance for the male gaze or whatever I mean at the same time you're very like there's a brilliant moment where you talk about the kind of the fantastical sort of multiplicity of what the women are doing on the webcams and what the men are sort of typing in the box asking them to do compared to what men themselves do and you describe this kind of you know the terrible backlit kind of just wanking at the desk chair like no, no thought to the kind of aesthetic of it or anything and you say something like you know the the contrast between the the array of things that men want women to do and the paucity of what they're prepared to do is really kind of um, interesting you know when you think about emotional labor as well as the kind of physical labor of sex work I find it so refreshing this kind of idea that of course in these spaces people are navigating all kinds of desires and needs as you know as you point out there's a lot of precarious work there's a lot of people who are doing webcam work to to fill an urgent gap in care for their mother or there's you know there's lots of kind of supporting family members and doing this kind of you know fast work which is you know the kind of um, situation with all kinds of sex-related work. But, of course, in amongst all those pressures and needs that are making people do certain kinds of paid work, there's also the possibility that they might be negotiating their own anxiety about sexuality. And in particular, the anxiety for women being, as you point out in lots of places in the book, the risks of sexual assault and the risks of pregnancy and disease and so these spaces are the kind of interestingly um safe sort of space to experiment with sex without the physical danger of sexual assault is i mean i thought the women in the book also spoke very beautifully about that yeah and on the economic point the other thing a lot of the women i spoke with that were earning some money on it saw it as more humanizing work than wage labor mm -hmm. and they that also to me went counter to this idea the culture sometimes has as sex work as a life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Objectifying and dehumanizing and a very patriarchal, you know, for a lot of these women, this was a more, and men too, there was more dignity and 
autonomy in this work than there was working mm. at Starbucks. Yeah, and also that some of the women spoke about not having to kind of indulge in the emotional labor of customer service work, that actually yeah. some of the women on the webcams are performing an indifference to the male audience or, you know, haughtiness or a kind of fuck you to, to the demands from the male audience in a way that is, you know, for them was a refreshing step away from the pliancy of customer service work, but also perhaps the pliancy that's involved in relationships as opposed to sex. And I suppose that's another thing I wanted to ask you about is that, so my feeling with the book is that you, you know, there's an, there's an ambivalence that you're kind of negotiating in relationship to relationships and whether, you know, sex has to mean a relationship or whether sex devalues a relationship or makes a relationship less possible, you know, all those classic questions that women have battled with. And I've, I feel like, in a sense, your implicit conclusion in the book, to the extent that there is one, is that some of the problems to do with sex and technology aren't really problems to do with sex or technology. They're problems to do with the narratives about female sexuality and the trajectory of women's lives that are the ones that need changing. So towards the end, you say something like, real disruption would be narration that doesn't make sense to us. And you say that technology, I think towards the beginning of the book, you say technology brought us people but they didn't tell us what to do with them. So in a sense, the argument, as I understood it, of the book is that, you know, sex and technology are always in relationship to one another and they're kind of calibrating one another the whole time. But in terms of how we decide what it is we want from life, in a sense, we're stuck with the same old questions, which are, are women entitled to a sex life with, that's free from danger and shame? Or do I have to be married in order to be seen as a person you know those kind of questions that have been around for so long does that resonate with your sense of what the argument yeah the yeah for? definitely yeah because there was on the one hand in some of the stuff I some of the ideas I was reacting against one of them would be this idea that the technology arrives and the whole world changes so now we have tinder hookup culture moral panic everybody's just like having sex with the person they found on their phone who lives next door, which I knew not to be. It was both true and untrue. Yeah, I had friends doing that. I also knew that it hadn't eased anybody's anxiety or any of the feelings they were having about yeah, doing that. And, and yeah, that there's a machine bias in futurism where, and a lot of people criticize me for not talking about virtual reality and not talking about teledildonics and sex robots. And it's just like, okay, let's say that we had a sex robot machine that could deliver your sex robot and give you the relationship that you want. You know, how would you, <laughs> how would you describe the relationship that you want? The person that you love most in life, would you be able to a priori describe that to the sex robot manufacturer? Like, no, that's not, it's not a helpful way of thinking about society, mm. unless you think of sex robots as just servants who have sex with you. I think that's the only way that you could make mm. the ideal sex robot. But so things like that, I just, yeah, I, I, it was frustration with that bias towards futurism. And also the book was about my own future and the uncertainty I had and will always have of how to, the times in your life when you're in the world as an individual and your life doesn't conform to dating and relationships, how do you have a sexuality and how do you feel belonging? How do you organize a family or a sense mm -hmm. of family? If you want to try to have kids on your own, how do you think of that? And those mm. seem to be futuristic questions to me. Mm. Yeah. 
But it seemed to me also that there was such a, an interesting preoccupation with the possibility of putting into language what it is you want from, from sex, but also, you know, from your life. And so in relation to the orgasmic meditation people or the polyamory people that you meet, there are, there are occasions where they, they sort of ask you these very direct questions about what you want. At one point somebody says, you know, what do you desire? And you say, what I desired was to surrender to another person without having to explain what I wanted. Yeah. And at some point, I think in the webcam stuff, somebody who's kind of showing you the ropes on the webcam stuff says, you say, she asked me what I liked, what I liked. So you just repeat the question in this way that I found, I mean, very moving and very, very striking because it raises the question of whether, you know, whether that ideal of pursuing knowledge about one's own sexuality and then trying to trying to manifest it in the world, you know, with the technologies that we develop and the communities that we form, whether that project can even make sense. And it seemed to me that I suppose the last question I really want to ask before I'm going to throw it open to everyone else is, is about the role of yourself in this book. Because obviously it seemed important and it'd be interesting to hear why it seemed important for you to be in it and to sort of detail these explorations yourself. But at the same time, it felt clear to me that you feel unsure or skeptical about your own potential to know what it is that you want. You know, there'd be these repeated kind of questions about being expected to know what you want and then, you know, go for it or find, find the community that will kind of satisfy that desire. I wondered whether part of that slightly rueful melancholy that I felt was in the book about your own ability to overcome inhibitions or your regret about not being the kind of person who could do X, Y, Z, whether in fact some of that ruefulness is a function of the technology perhaps because, you know, we have all these technologies that enable us to see that there are people who, you know, like to dress up as pandas and be spanked. I mean, I, I didn't know that 15 years ago. I wouldn't have known that there was such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the technology changes your relationship to what, what kind of person you feel you might be. And I wondered how that played into kind of the decision to write in the first person in the book. Yeah, the first person, um, it's funny because my editor's here, <laughs> and so she'll know. It's embarrassing because I had a lot of, I was, I didn't want to use the first person. I was, I knew that it had to be a first person book, but I didn't want to write about, I wanted to do this kind of new journalism, 70s style novelistic narrative about other people, which really the chapter on the polyamorous is the only one that really ended up slightly that way, but I'm still in it. I think it was both shyness and embarrassment and um, and also not realizing at the beginning that this was the experience of reporting and journalism was an alibi that I was asking questions um, about myself that I couldn't even admit to myself I was asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first person came in, in successive drafts, and I still, I mean, if I were to write another draft now, there would be more even. And my regrets of the book in general are about places where I, I wasn't honest enough or specific enough because I was scared to reveal myself. But like, I just wasn't in the, to go back again to the first question about honesty, um, I was in the question of what do you desire, what do you like. Um, these were not questions I was in the practice of answering, and I didn't even... I do think there's... A lot of the book was also written out of jealousy for the way in which some of my male friends in particular... I don't want to like bring up the gender binary, but some of the people in my life just had this 
specificity about what they liked, um, a confidence about pursuing sexual experiences, whether it was in the form of a like a transaction, like hiring a sex worker, or knowing what to search exactly what to search on porn, knowing exactly when you're using an app, yes or no about a person mm -hmm. based on a sexual criteria. Yeah, but the apps um, for men assume that desire can be named. I think that's the way. Yeah, you put it at and point. whereas with the general interest ones, it was all about books and interests and. Mm -hmm. um, hobbies and and that again was a space I felt comfortable with. The book I hope detailed the discomfort really in learning how to um, adopt putting putting sexual desire in language and how discomfort how uncomfortable that was for me. I, I know some people read the book and they were like, "What would it take to make this person happy?" But, um, but I just yeah, I wasn't trying to be really morose, but it was it was not an easy process and it's still these questions of of what about me is um, you know Sometimes, you know, I'm upset that I'm not more spontaneous and, and what's like kind of conditioning and what's mm -hmm. gen like really my real desires, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it, it definitely, I'm far less certain of my reality than I was when I started, but in a good way, in a way that's been helpful. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. one of the kind of tremendous virtues of the book is that you're willing to put your own uncertainty into the pages and grapple with what feels uncomfortable to you and that's I mean that's a it's a difficult thing to do and it's something that has immense kind of political and epistemological payoffs I think. Um, let's have some questions and then maybe you can just read a little bit more at the very end so we can end with you. Um, I'm really intrigued by the relationship between um, the objectivity you need as a writer when you're pursuing these stories and your, um, your participatory self in them. Could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between those two? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it was helpful for me in the course of writing the book to have this rhetorical form of, of journalism such as it was in my mind that was where I could be um, less judgmental than I was when it came to my own personal life and the decisions I was making. And just a, a thing in me of feeling really tired in reading and in, in, in articles and books about this subject, people who set out to determine whether something was good or bad. I don't think I knew in the beginning that that was my plan was to suspend that question, but it became, eventually I realized that's what I was trying to do. And that, for example, the porn chapter was really difficult to write because I spent a lot of, you know, I saw this BDSM pornography that frankly scared me a little bit and didn't represent a, the world I wanted to live in necessarily, but if I let go of that, of having to decide what it meant for the world, it allowed me, it opened up a, a space where I could consider why the people that made it, what it did for them, why they enjoyed it, why they pursued it, what it meant as a person to let yourself contemplate that something that disgusts you or feels upsetting to you can be, I don't know, letting yourself think about that stuff without judgment allows you to open up new space and idea and ideas in your mind. So the journalism just helped me, yeah, it was like a, 
a rhetorical strategy really that served to let me spend my own neuroses a little bit. Yeah. Hi, um, thanks so much for the book and for speaking about it. I was just wondering, um, I find that even though there's kind of these pockets um, of sexual experimentation and stuff that's kind of facilitated by the internet, actually at large society is still pretty kind of closed off and shy about talking about sex. And like when I was reading the book on the tube, for example, I always noticed people nudging, nudging their friends and pointing at it and stuff. Um, and I was just wondering uh, how you found it kind of navigating the world as somebody who's written really frankly about a subject like that both in terms of you know when you meet strangers and tell them what you do and what you're writing about or whatever but also just in terms of having um, spent time with really experimental communities and then having to just live in a world that's much more closed and shy well it's funny because for some for some people the book is so it's basic sexuality you know for people that have really gone out there and tried things I think the book is kind of not that interesting because um, they're years ahead of it or whatever and then but then yeah then I mean I am I am embarrassed sometimes to talk when I when I get asked what the book is about and I don't want to get into it I usually say it's a book about internet dating because that just like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then somebody will tell you about their yeah, you know, dating yeah, experience. Okay. <laughs> you can just stop, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it, it's it's funny. I mean, it opened up a whole new world for me of um, a kind of new social life, a new like party scene, maybe or something. Um, and it's funny that you can have how closely these things can exist, that there can be a group of people that for whom this is like crazy stuff and then a group of people for whom it's like really run-of-the-mill, you know, existing side by side. And it was hard for me because, you know, I wanted to... Once I got over, I was definitely nervous in the beginning about um, ruining my career in some way or, or not being a person who is taken seriously anymore that I wouldn't get a political writing assignment. I still, you know, I still sometimes I get an assignment and I know that the person's going to Google the book and I, I just want to pretend that's not going to happen. But I got over that a little. And, and then it now, sometimes I'm, I wonder if you're like a queer theorist or if you're somebody that's really into some of these scenes, if, if this book is like, really annoying and kind of middle-brow. Yeah. <laughs> it probably is, yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't nodding. I, no, I wasn't nodding because, like, yeah. No, no, I was just yeah. um, um, One thing I thought was interesting about the book is the way in which it sort of argues for experimentation and doing things you're maybe not that comfortable with. But I was sort of wondering how that gels with trying to have something more, like, about that sort of way in which if you're doing something that you're not totally comfortable with or you're trying something new, that's often seen as a good thing. But in the field of sex, it's like we want to push towards people doing things that they like really want to be doing and don't feel pressured into doing. So I was wondering sort of how you see those two ideas coming together. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
and especially with something like the orgasmic meditation that came up because it it was like I think it helped that in that case it wasn't intercourse yeah they were constantly pressuring people and this is a criticism of them but they were pressuring people to do things that they were uncomfortable with um with the promise that it should be uncomfortable and you'll get somewhere and if you try that and I yeah that's a you know that's a personal question for every everybody. I definitely in the course of the book I tried I don't know there was one thing I didn't write about that I kind of regretted doing but really I nothing ever happened you know consent is pretty straightforward. You can tell somebody yeah this idea of enthusiastic consent makes a lot of sense when you're at a big party. But when you're you know one on one you don't have to be all gung ho you can you can let somebody know that you're nervous or <laughs> you're not sure you might need to stop you know there was a different there's nothing i did that i regretted or that i think caused me some kind of harm but and there was nothing that was unconsensual either so i i think you can, i think people can balance those two things but i do think in the in the context of like the polyamorists have this scene where they have parties together and in that case enthusiastic consent is an important idea the enthusiasm part because people feel pressured to um sleep with their friends when they don't want to um because they're friends or because of the environment so i think that that modifier just helps to remind people that yeah you you definitely don't you definitely can say no it's, yeah <laughs> Um it's just interested in um what kind of feedback you've got from the writing about did people uh, enjoy the book did any of them feel sort of ill used or I was just kind of interested in what feedback you've been getting Um yeah I didn't if if somebody felt ill used they haven't told me you know the orgasmic meditation people saw this as a step in their great campaign <laughs> to proselytize about their practice to the world so they were happy Princess Donna didn't really tell me what she thought but she's promoted it a couple of times um is she the in the king yeah she's film. the the BDSM director uh the polyamorous felt like I um could have been harder on them as like on their privileged um they thought I could have made it, but they I mean I'm kind but of they they thought you could have been harder on them yeah yeah oh interesting yeah, yeah. They, they. I think they were preparing themselves for me to sort of make fun of them as this like tech, uh, you know, these like privileged millennials, which I, I think I do. Um, but they in were a, expecting nice more. Um, but no, they're kind of friends with me now. We're still in touch, and when they come to New York, we have dinner. And <laughs> just dinner. Just dinner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, nobody um nobody told me they hated it. I mean, for the most part, I especially certain parts of the book that were fact-checked. So they people really knew what was in it. They didn't read I didn't I don't let people read stuff before it comes out, but they um they knew all the things that were going to be said and had a chance to respond for the most part. So if somebody really hated it, I I don't think I know. Um yeah, they didn't tell me. <laughs> We should probably wind up. There's so much more I would like to ask Emily as I'm sure is the case for you too. Um but I wonder if you could just read 
a paragraph. And can I can I ask you to read this particular paragraph? Because okay. there's a chapter on birth control and reproduction that is short and perfect and beautiful. And um, could you read that paragraph? You could like start there. I'm being so prescriptive. <laughs> the celibacy? Yeah, it's okay. just such an amazing... I, I, I mean, actually, I feel that you could write a whole book about this <laughs> paragraph. Um, so if you're happy to read it, if you want yeah, to read something else, do. <laughs> Uh, to be religious is often associated with a certain idea of family, but most religions have allowed for the declaration of a vocation based on one's sexual practices. Married life was one such vocation, one way of being in the world. There were also the fig figures of the hermit, the monk, the ascetic, the nun. Celibacy was traditionally required to follow these roles, which were defined by either severe introspection and isolation, or an equally radical commitment of one's life to the public, to serving the community. Their roles outside family were respected by society because of collective acknowledgement that presenting to the world as an individual allowed for orders of connection unavailable to people busy raising and providing for their offspring. Now there is a new kind of person, perhaps in a similar position, whose place apart from the householder is assured not by celibacy but by contraception. Is this not also a, voc a vocation? It's wonderful. I love the idea of a kind of contraceptive vocation or vocational contraceptive subjectivity <laughs> that I strongly identify with. <laughs> Thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful book and for talking to us and answering questions. Thank you very Thank much for you. coming. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>